The statements and views expressed on the Voices and Vulnerability podcast are those of the speakers alone and do not necessarily reflect the views of Emory University School of Law or its affiliates. Welcome to Voices and Vulnerability, where we interview the scholars shaping vulnerability theory in the legal world and beyond. We're here to learn about the transformational potential of vulnerability theory and how it is already shaping public policy and discourse around the world. My name is Mangala Kinesen. Today, I'm grateful to have Professor Martha Feynman here on the show as my guest. Martha, thank you so much for being here. I'm delighted to be here. Martha Feynman is the founder of the Feminism and Legal Theory Project and the Vulnerability and the Human Condition Initiative. She is a Robert W. Woodruff Professor at Emory University School of Law and an internationally recognized legal scholar. So first of all, Martha, in about 30 seconds, can you give us an elevator speech describing what vulnerability theory is? Well, I think the best way to describe it is that vulnerability theory is really an alternative to a human rights paradigm for thinking about state responsibility. And it's built around a more realistic and comprehensive notion of what it means to be human than is a rights paradigm, which tends to think about agency and autonomy and dignity and and things like that that describe part of what being human is. But I think vulnerability as susceptibility to change, both positive and negative, uh, throughout the life course, change affecting both our social and physical well-being, is a more realistic way to think about what it means to be human. Can you tell us a little bit about the core beliefs that underlie vulnerability theory and how those contrast to current theories about law and policy? Well, I think, so when you think about law and policy today, a lot of what people do or think about is the notion of the social contract. So that there is an agreement made by rational individuals to cede part of their autonomy or liberty to the state in order to have certain protections. And there's lots of quibbles about exactly how far that secession goes or what liberties and are, are actually given up and so forth and so on, which is what you see a lot of political discourse. Um, a vulnerability theory starts with the notion that the whole basis for our organizing ourselves as communities, as families, as nation states, whatever the social organization is, the whole basis for that is actually human vulnerability. Again, our susceptibility to change and our need for resilience or resources in order to adapt to and survive and thrive uh, in the context of that change. So that the state responsibility arises not from a coming together of autonomous, independent, liberty-seeking individuals, and they're rationally deciding or making a contract to give certain authority to the state, but rather it's based on the notion of the state's responsibility. The whole rationale or existence of the state is dependent on its ability to actually provide uh, the institutions and relationships that provide resilience. So the state creates, for example, through law, institutions like the family or the workplace or the finance system or the health system, you just name it. I mean, it's everything in which we find our lives um, affected on a day-to-day basis. That These are all creatures of law. These are all created by law and policy. So a vulnerability theory would say 
the state then has a responsibility to ensure that those institutions and relationships are in fact responsive to human vulnerability and not some abstract notion of an autonomous individual or some idea of the market or, or whatever it is that's used as the rationale. In American politics, we often talk about the family as a unit that is apart from the government and that should be protected from the government. Can you speak to that a little bit? Well, I think the best, what we have are quasi-private institutions. And they're only private because, in fact, the state, the collective, has made the determination that they won't be regulated. But the family is a heavily regulated institution. I mean, the state tells us who can marry whom and under what circumstances. They tell us what the consequences are of that relationship uh, when it's in, in effect and also when it dissolves. Uh, it tells us, who, you know, who the members are, what the obligations and responsibilities are. So the family... It, it's supposedly the quintessential private institution, but it in fact is not private in any sense of the word. I mean, we see that time and time again. And in fact, the, what I like to think about the family is that it's a mediating institution, as is uh, things like the workplace. So they mediate the state responsibility and the state creates a family, this institution, which is supposed to take care of its members and also deliver certain kinds of social goods. So we do that through the family. We privilege the family. The family membership in a family gives you all sorts of economic and other benefits, again, from the state so that it mediates between the state and the individual. Uh, but that to say that does, is not in any way to say that the family is private. Quite the contrary, it's a it's a, a constructed institution, and it varies. What constitutes a family varies over time. It varies culturally, historically. I mean, so there's no family that you can define that exists throughout time and space. So what I'm asking people to do is to really think differently mm -hmm. than we've been taught, so that when you think about social justice, for example, uh, today in the United States of America. What people tend to think about is gender justice or racial justice or economic justice. They tend to, in fact, individualize and, quote, privatize the whole notion of justice. What a vulnerability project does is to say that we're really talking about social justice, social institutions, social relationships. It transcends the individual, the individual characteristics, the individual situation. It's really a notion, again, of generalized responsibility, how we construct the institutions of the state so that they are, in fact, responsive to human vulnerability. Not particular vulnerability, there is no such thing, but the vulnerability that we all share. And we share it from the time that we're infants, obviously vulnerable and in need of care, to throughout our lives, you and I are now totally dependent uh, on the financial system, on the healthcare system in the United States. We're dependent on Emory University as an institution, or at least I am, <laughs> uh, for, for all sorts of things, including your health benefits, your old age security, all sorts of things that the institution provides. So the whole notion of autonomy and independence that we build so much of our fictions around in the United States really has to be examined because they don't serve a useful purpose. What they do is they allow politicians and others to actually push 
the notion of individual and personal responsibility and absolutely ignore the notion of collective responsibility or, or our responsibility that arises from the fact that, in fact, we live in a social environment. One question I always have when considering any political or, or philosophical theory is who benefits. When you think about the idea of autonomy, the way it comes up in a lot of political rhetoric, who, who benefits currently compared to who would you like to benefit? Well, I think autonomy is the notion that people who don't need uh, or who don't see themselves uh, as dependent on, on institutions or others, uh, they benefit from it. Uh, they benefit because they have a certain amount of wages or so forth or so on. But they, too, are dependent. And I think the um, w- w- one thing I'd like to talk about is during the early part of the 20th century, uh, 21st century, um, we saw Katrina. We saw the uh, financial d- devastation that occurred after uh, 2008, which really show it doesn't really matter what the individual does. These catastrophes can happen that can affect everyone. I'm sure many people who thought of themselves as autonomous and independent were actually devastated in after 2008 when the when the whole international economic finance system collapsed. Uh, people lost their houses, they lost their jobs, they lost all sorts of things, not because of anything they did, but because of things that other people did and things that other institutions did. Again, these institutions being empowered by the state. So if it, what, what I think we have to think about is this notion that autonomy and independence, what that does is allow the state or those with, in fact, power and wealth and resources to abandon the responsibility uh, that they owe to all of us. After these catastrophes and disasters that you mentioned, did you see or have you noticed any changes in the way that states respond? Uh, no, and I think that one of the real projects, um, a, vulner- a vulnerability analysis is really what I like to call a theory of the middle range. So it takes grand principles like the idea or the notion of human vulnerability um, and the notion of social justice, these abstract kinds of, of concepts, and looks at it in the context of the empirical realities. So it, it's a theory of the middle range. It's the tension between those. So one of the criticisms, of course, is that with 2008, a lot of individuals uh, suffered tremendously because they lost their homes. Again, they lost their jobs. They lost all sorts of things. But the f- banking industry, in fact, did not suffer at all. No one. I think one person ended up in jail. Uh, by and large, the banking industry is doing quite well. It's doing as well as it was before, and people are being rewarded within that industry, within that institution, in much of the same way that they were before. Again, because the state has failed to walk in and regulate it the way that it really needs to be regulated. In other words, um, I like to say to people who talk about the state not intervening or individual responsibility and so forth and so on, the question is not whether we have an active state or not. We have an active state. The state is always acting. It acts through law. It acts through policy. It acts through its institutions. What the question is, or the relevant question for a vulnerability analysis, in whose interest is the state acting? Not whether it's acting at all, but in whose interest is it acting? And in that context of the uh, 2008 
um, economic crisis, the state was definitely acting in the interest of the banking, the finance system, which it bailed out, and not in the interest of the individual homeowners who were often uh, deceptively led into making these these terrible mortgages. So it, it, again, it requires an examination of the institutions and the way they're structured, the laws that regulate them. What are the laws that regulate the banking system? What are the laws that that in fact allow this bundling of these uh, susceptible mortgages? What you know? What happened there, and how can those laws be reframed uh, so that there is not um, this? This is not possible. So the state's living up to its responsibility. How does vulnerability theory impact current power that multinational corporations have? Many people look at corporations and they think of them as somehow natural beings. I mean, they are persons in law, which is nonsense. They're really not persons, but they are legal persons. But they are creatures of law. Corporations do not exist outside of law. They are not like you or me. They're real beings. I mean, these are totally constructed beings. So the idea that they're totally without, outside of control, of human control, is nonsense. They can be controlled. The question is whether there's a political will to do that. And what you always hear is, of course, oh, well, if we tax the corporations, they'll go someplace else. My response to that is let them. If, if everybody taxes them, if everybody regulates them, there's no place for them to go. And plus, I don't believe that they, in fact, are, where, where are they going to end up? The markets, where the markets are, if, if you believe in, in the power of the markets, the markets are in the developed countries. The markets are not in the un, undeveloped countries, and they want to have access to that. So again, law can create that access or deny that access. Law can do an awful lot to, to actually rein in uh, these, these corporations. Can you tell me a little bit about social justice and how we might view that differently through a vulnerability lens? Yeah. Well, again, I think that what's happened with social justice over the course of the um, of the 20th century, mostly, was as you, as you saw more and more groups uh, coming into and arguing for their rights uh, within the context of um, of a system that where women were excluded, people of color were excluded, uh, children still are excluded. We had kind of special uh, special legal categories for certain individuals, and they were outside of the of the true notion of of who who in fact mattered. So during the twentieth century, and this was an absolutely essential and necessary point. Uh, people argued for inclusion in that, and that did happen, and that happened successfully, at least in law, uh, so that we know we no longer have gendered rules, or or we don't have Jim Crow. The formal discrimination is in fact gone. Now, this is not to argue that it's gone in practice, and that there's still not residues, and I don't want to argue that. But that was so that was very successful and a necessary step. But what that does is to focus our attention on individual groups or individuals on the notion and and the concept of a discrimination. So the argument is that the injury is from the exclusion or the discrimination of certain groups from the existing power structure, from the the existing uh, privilege, right? That, That was the argument. What a vulnerability analysis says is that's great and that's necessary to do, but it's not enough. Because if your only concern is with discrimination, 
One of the ways that you can address that, for example, uh, because discrimination means that some groups or some people are being treated differently than others, is that you treat everyone the same. You can treat everyone badly as long as you treat them the same. That's, an anti that's where anti-discrimination gets you. Now, where a vulnerability analysis gets you, or what, we're, what we seek to do, is to say, aside from the discrimination question, what are the social arrangements, what are the institutional arrangements, what are the relationships that are shaped by law, so that the identities that we're concerned with in a vulnerability analysis are not gender or race, for example. Uh, that's the discrimination question. But rather, when we think about employers versus employees, when we think about parents versus children, when we think about shareholders versus consumers, those are the relationships. What power, what privilege is conveyed in the way that we construct the relationship between an employer and employee? Employers are overwhelmingly privileged in the context of American labor law. So the American labor law really has to be rethought again with the vulnerability of the employee as weighted in the consideration as is the vulnerability of the employer right now. So we see a lot of political attention to the needs of the market and the needs economic insecurity, and we have to bolster up the employer, and these people are job creators, where we don't, again, worry about the vulnerability of the employee. We do have some protections that were hard fought uh, during the New Deal and in the aftermath of the New Deal. So you have some uh, wage protection, you have some unemployment, protection. But those are all under attack now. Those are all under attack. People want to remove all of those protections, what is called the social safety net, which is you know, a term that's deeply problematic from my perspective. But they want to remove all of those protections so that there's actually nothing for the vulnerable employee. And the employee is as vulnerable to economic shifts, to dislocations, as is the employer. But again, the state is focusing only on the employer. Can you speak a bit to resilience and what the state can do to provide a baseline of resilience? Yeah. Well, the whole point of a vulnerability analysis is really not to think about vulnerability. Our vulnerability, again, arises uh, because we are embodied creatures, and as such, we are dependent always on social institutions and relationships, right? We need care, we need taken care of, and so forth. So the notion of, of resilience is really the point. To get to resilience uh, and actually to get to the responsive state is really the whole point of a vulnerability analysis. It's not to describe vulnerability. Vulnerability is the starting point. The end point, the normative part of vulnerability theory, is to argue that, the, again, the state must be responsive to the vulnerable subject and the vulnerable subject's need for resilience, need for the resources that allow us to live, not only live, not only survive, but actually thrive in the context of our vulnerability. So resources come in all different forms. You have uh, resources that are uh, familiar or uh, relational resources, like the family as a resource. Um, you also have material resources. You have financial resources, economic resources. Uh, you have resources in the form of human capital uh, provided by education and training and so forth and so on. Um, but you also have existential resources, resources that 
whether our by our notion of what gives life meaning, um, whether that's art, religion, or politics, could be. And so we have all of these these resources that we use to kind of navigate our lives and the uncertainty, the changes, the um, the, the fragility of our own circumstances as embodied beings. And that is the responsibility of the state. So a responsive state provides the institutions, the educational system, the family system, the financial system, the healthcare system, all of those systems that in fact provide the resilience that we that we need to survive. What are ecological resources? Well, I mean, this is a big issue. And actually, there's a tremendous number of people using vulnerability theory now to talk about the environment. Uh, we are all of us dependent on the air, clean air, clean water. Again, the whole way that we think about the individual as being paramount, the individual as the only relevant actor, puts the, all of that, the climate, the environment, outside of human concern. A vulnerability analysis views us as totally dependent on the environment in which we find ourselves. And that's true not only of the built environment, not only of the institutions and, and so forth, um, but also on the natural environment, uh, which is a, a relationship that we've totally rejected. And so, I mean, in the United States still reject. Uh, the rest of the world is better with that than we are right now. Uh, can you tell me a little bit about ecological resources globally as they compare to ecological resources within the United States of America? Well, I think ecological resources have to be thought of globally. I mean, there there are no bar- national barriers that keep out air pollution. Or, right. um, it, it, it just doesn't happen. It, um, the climate change and things like that just affect the, the globe, the entire globe. I mean, look at what's happening now with the tremendous uh, warming and the... the Famines and the, uh, it just, I mean, it's, yeah, it's a, it's a global problem. It's not just a national problem. Unfortunately, we, um, again, the way that we structure things, we don't really have uh, a truly effective, and by that I mean coercive, international um, governance system. Uh, so that it really, it, it falls to the individual nation states. And that's why we have things like the Paris Accord, uh, which unfortunately Donald Trump withdrew from. Um, where the promise was that the nations were at least coming together to agree that something had to be done. It might not have been enough, but at least it was a start. Uh, So we have a political structure, um, a sovereignty structure, that uh, makes it difficult to act on the the global level, but it's definitely a global problem. How does a vulnerability analysis impact the state's rights well, a vulnerability analysis would require a rethinking of, of most of the law in the United States, uh, from contract law to um, tort law to family law to criminal law. I mean, if you really take it seriously, and instead of an autonomous, independent, self-sufficient adult being at the center of the way that we organize our society, we in fact have what we are, the vulnerable subject the subject who is, again, susceptible to change throughout their life, positive and negative, and dependent on resources, dependent on institutions and relationships, socially social institutions and relationships that are constructed in law. Um, it, 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 it's a very different way of thinking. And, and in fact, most of the, that's what most of the scholars involved in the project are, are doing. I mean, we now have 
um, various books. We have various workshops that look at all sorts of things, whether from contract to employment to family to um, public health to environmental. I mean, in all sorts of areas where they're rethinking how, again, how the law should respond to the vulnerable subject and not this mythical um, autonomous, independent, liberty-seeking individual that never existed and actually is a not only a figment of our imagination, but a distortion of reality. Can you tell us a little bit about the workshops that the Vulnerability and the Human Condition Initiative has? Yeah, so we do four or five workshops a year on a variety of different subjects, and um, they're open to everyone. It's not only people that are interested in law, although it is people that are interested in politics, law, social justice, all sorts of issues like that. Uh, so we have sociologists, historians, uh, anthropologists, in addition to lawyers. So it's it's open to all. It's interdisciplinary in um, in form, um, and they deal with various topics from a vulnerability analysis. So this year we're doing one on the role of the academy or the university in the reproduction of a just society. So what role does in fact the university? serve in the notion of reproduction of, of a just society. If you look, again, if you look at the university as a social institution and all you see is this is something that's supposed to train you for jobs in the future and you organize it like a, quote, business, which is what's happening with a lot of universities, then you forget that there's a broader role for the university, which really is the transmission also of a certain set of values, a certain set of aspirations, um, standards, uh, norms. Uh, all of that is a really important part of what universities do that tends to get lost when we think about it only in the context of its economic role. So that's what we want to bring into, into that workshop. Um, and we, you know, again, we're doing one that looks at uh, artificial intelligence and the need for uh, a code of professionalism that recognizes that artificial intelligence is not just a matter of technological advance and individual and economic uh, well-being, but rather that artificial intelligence affects the way that we think about what it means to be human, the way that we think about human interaction. It may have epigenetic implications as this kind of technology affects our brains and what happens in our brains that will affect generations in the future uh, because of, of structural changes in the brain that neuroscientists are finding. So there's all sorts of, you know, again, ways of looking at this that take things away from an individual focus, away from an economic focus, away from the way that we've been thinking about this uh, to to consider the social implications of, of things we do as a society. It sounds like a vulnerability analysis can be applied in pretty much any academic field. Yep. <laughs> any area, right. When you do apply that analysis, what are the questions that you ask? Well, um, the first question, and I think this should be, and no matter what, what you're doing, whether it's philosophy, economics, history, the first question you have to ask yourself is, what does it mean to be human? So when you start off thinking about this, what does it mean to be human is the first question, uh, or that we should be asking. 
And then when you answer that, you're also answering a second question, is what does it, what is the content or the nature of state or collective responsibility, given what it means to be human? So again, if you start off, the, what it means to be human is you're a liberty-seeking, independent individual. What you want is a state that stays out of your business, right? Um, you want a non-interventionist state. You want freedom. Uh, if, in fact, what you do is you say to be human is to be vulnerable, to be susceptible to change that is beyond, quite often beyond your control, what you need is a state that is, in fact, going to provide resilience, that's going to, in fact, provide the institutions and relationships that you need. Uh, the, the second one uh, is a reality. The first one is, a, again, a fiction. A fiction that seems like it stems from our American mythos. And... Well, no, it actually stems from the Enlightenment. And the interesting thing about the Enlightenment, of course, is the Enlightenment was a bunch of ideas put together by men <laughs> who had all sorts of, whether it was their wives or their slaves or their apprentices or their whatever, all sorts of people taking care of their vulnerability. They didn't really have to think about vulnerability. Uh, I mean, they, they did eventually because, of course, they declined, they became ill and so <laughs> forth. But they had all the mechanisms. They had the resources there. They, the, the society that they created, the institutions of the family, the institutions of, um, you know, master-servant, all of those legal concepts that we, we learned, those all supported them in their ability to ignore their own vulnerability, their own need, their own dependency. They could pretend that it didn't happen. Problem is, when you in fact say, okay, all of those individuals and groups that used to serve those that small elite group of, of, of men um, now also have rights, right? And we, we put them on an equal footing. What ha who's left? I mean, this is like, who then takes care of all of those vulnerabilities, especially when you have a state that's constructed to stay out, not to intervene. We want to pretend that they're in fact not, you know, not doing anything. What would you like listeners to remember? Well, I, I, I would like them to know, I'm asking you to think very differently about things than you've actually been trained and, and that we, the way that we normally think about things, so particularly critical theorists that we normally, again, think in terms of discrimination, and that's really what guides the way that we think about the world. Uh, and again, discrimination is a problem and can be a problem, but what a vulnerability analysis says is that there are problems that are not, in fact, addressed by an anti-discrimination paradigm, and that you have to look beyond the individual characteristics, beyond the individual, in fact, to the kinds of structural relationships and the way that they are designed and the way that they are supposed to function and what work they actually do. So um, it's hard to do that, and people keep slipping back. And I have this argument all the time when people start to talk about vulnerability and they'll really be talking about disadvantage or discrimination or weakness. or And you have to say, no, vulnerability is a descriptive term. It describes the ontological body 
the fact that our bodies are susceptible to change, to, to positive and negative change, uh, again, over the life course, that is vulnerability, and it, is, it belongs to everyone. It's not construction, not manufactured. It exists across time. It exists across cultures. It is the human condition. So thinking about that, then, then let's talk about where we go with uh, with law and policy and politics, but first accept the notion of the vulnerable subject. Well, thank you so much for being here. It's such a privilege to have you here on campus. This has been an episode of Voices and Vulnerability. Expect a new episode every month. If you like what you heard here, you can find us on Twitter at VHC Initiative and on Facebook at Vulnerability and the Human Condition. Thanks for tuning in.